Good morning. I'm here to introduce our speaker for chapel this morning, Dr. Nancy Nason Clark. She's here as part of our faculty scholarship symposium today that's going on through luncheon and faculty presentations this afternoon. If you're interested in more information about that, you can find that on the portal or on Facebook by searching for Faculty Scholarship Symposium. Dr. Nathan Clark is a recently retired professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick in Canada and the director of the RAVE Project, which is funded by the Lilly Foundation, located right here in Indiana. The RAVE Project is a nonprofit initiative that brings together knowledge and social action to assist families of faith that have been impacted by domestic abuse. She's the author or editor of over 15 books, including most recently a book entitled Religion and Intimate Partner Violence. Dr. Nathan Clark is a believer in Jesus Christ who has taught and researched at a major public university. Her life and work are a testimony to how we can creatively intertwine our faith and our scholarship in God's work of changing the world. Please help me welcome her. Well, I count it an honor and a privilege to be with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you in advance for listening to what's on my heart and what is on my mind. And didn't we have awesome music this morning? I really enjoyed that. So thank you to the band and to the vocalists. My scripture this morning is Isaiah chapter 61, starting at verse 1. The, script, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And then down to verse 7, instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. Shall we pray? Precious Lord, take the words that human hands have put together my hands and empower them from on high so that no one will leave this place untouched by what he or she might do to bind up the brokenhearted with whom they come into contact. And I'll remember always to give you thanks for that. Amen. 41 years ago, I sat in a chapel similar to this one at Houghton College in New York. I was about to leave the comfort of the Christian College campus and begin graduate school in a place where I knew no one. I was excited and I was nervous. Like many of you, I believed that God had placed a call on my life. Like many of you, I was not entirely sure of the direction that would take. 
I did not know whether I was well enough prepared intellectually or emotionally for all the challenges ahead, but I was eager to step out in faith. I suspect many of you feel the same way. As you heard in the introduction offered by Dr. Bruhler, I went on to graduate school first in Canada and then in England, gathering a couple of degrees along the way. I began to get some real-world experience in university and government settings, and also as a researcher with the British and Foreign Bible Society, as it was then called in London, England. I was being prepared for future responsibilities that would become mine. But of course, all I knew is that I was walking through one open door at a time. Eventually, my skills and interests led to work in the area of domestic violence, the topic of my address today. One of the first pieces I wrote on violence in the family context, I entitled, From the Heart of My Laptop. The title was meant to signify that working on issues of abuse extracts an emotional cost from the researcher as well as those she might choose to study. It was work that brought me face to face with suffering, both inside and beyond the walls of our communities of faith. It would transform how I understood the research process and give me enormous opportunities to translate my work and go public. Together with a fantastic team of graduate students and colleagues, I've had the privilege of speaking out against the holy hush, of helping to shatter the silence, and of building up the coordinated collective community response to this social issue. In many interesting places around the globe and in the pages of the books I've written, we've been able to help to pave the pathway between the steeple and the shelter, or between the church and the community. We've listened to the stories of those who've been abused, and we've listened to the stories of those who act abusively. And I've been so fortunate to speak about my work in large and small settings, in universities and at conferences, in churches and lecture halls, in speaking cafes and in chapels like today, all places. I never thought possible. Through these varied experiences, I began to learn what it would mean for me to bind up the brokenhearted. To be sure, neither you nor I can help to bind up the hearts who are, of those who we don't even know are broken. And I'm going to repeat that for emphasis just in case you were on your phone. Neither you nor I can learn what it means to bind up the hearts of those we don't even know are broken. For me, and perhaps for you too, knowledge generation is often the first step. So let's think together for a few minutes about what we know about intimate partner violence and other forms of woman abuse, which is my focus today. And of course, there are many other kinds of abuse of which I'm not speaking today because you want to have lunch. Every Sunday, millions of women across Canada, the United States, and indeed around the world join together with other believers in congregational life to worship God and to fellowship and study with others of like faith. 
amidst the singing, the teaching, and the sweet Sunday smiles, there is often a very ugly secret. Sometimes the secret is disclosed in the pastoral study, together with the fear and the shame and the tears it creates. Sometimes part of the secret is whispered to others who inquire of bruises or absences or the look of dismay that can cloud the eyes as well as the continents. Often it's disclosed one woman or one man to another, hushed, as if speaking the truth out loud would jeopardize the friendship, the trust, or the practical help that is so critical. Violence against women is a pervasive reality. It exists in every country of the world, amongst all people groups, in every faith community. And it knows no socioeconomic boundaries. Rich women, poor women, black women, white women, educated women, religious women, beautiful women, all women can be potential targets. Governments around the globe are waking up to the reality of the devastating consequences of violence against women, and public money is starting to trickle to a greater understanding of the problem of abuse, reforming the judicial system to respond more quickly, and providing health and other social services. Yet amidst the growing recognition of the fears of abused women, the bruises and the battering their experience, and their need for safety and security where are the churches? Where are people of deep religious commitment? Why are so many of us still sound asleep? Indeed, a holy hush pervades many religious organizations, cathedrals, small churches, even college chapels. Leaders as well as followers deny it's happening unsure of how to respond, many of us prefer to sweep it under the proverbial church carpet. Let's be honest, there's a lot of evidence of a holy hush. In case you need some convincing, here's a few pieces of evidence from our research. Most religious leaders do not blame abuse in the family context for what it is. Instead, they refer to family conflict or disagreements or problems of communication something that's quite different. Most religious leaders have never visited the transition house or shelter in their local area. They do not know any of the workers by name, nor the phone number if they need to get it quickly. Most clergy have never preached a message in their entire career that explicitly condemns wife abuse, child abuse, or abuse directed toward men. Most ministers do not include any information about abuse in their premarital counseling packages with couples. Most leaders of youth groups never talk about abuse in dating relationships, nor do they encourage young men and women to identify and practice healthy interpersonal encounters. When women and men who've been victimized come to their faith communities for help, pastors and others are often reluctant to refer them to outside resources, to the experts. Keep it hushed. Sometimes religious leaders do not offer spiritual comfort to victims, like reading passages from the scripture or praying with them for strength. Yet, there is a rumbling in some congregational contexts and closets that cannot be silenced. 
It's getting louder all the time. It's determined to shatter the silence, particularly in families of faith. You see, when abuse strikes at home in a religious family, many women and men first look to their pastor for help. What help will they be given? What advice will be offered? This is where, for me, step two comes in. Action after knowledge. After we know of the suffering of those whose hearts have been broken, what are we going to do about it? What skills and energy and passion can we bring, you and me, to make a difference? My work of knowledge translation, where we use data collected from our studies around the world, but prepare it for dissemination to a wider public, uses the motif of stained glass to tell a story. And we're going to see if I can be smart enough to get this to the next one. Maybe not. There we are. You heard before the mention of the RAVE project. Well, this is a project that was designed to be able to talk about data and studies and regression equations using stained glass. Stained glass, long a symbol associated with Christian churches, is a reminder that beauty can be born from brokenness. Jagged pieces of glass, rough to the touch and piercing to the skin, can be transformed. And this is the story to which I now turn, a story based on our fieldwork. And what you see there are six panes of glass. So we took our story to a group of stained glass artists and we said, we want you to help us to tell the story of what we've heard from hundreds, indeed thousands of women in many places around the world that tells what's happened to them as they've told it to us. And that, of course, is the RAVE project. What you see is that these panes of glass draw attention to both the suffering and the trajectory of what actually takes place. Because in the beginning, you see, there is peace. The colors represent the diversity amongst family members, and the, the strands between them show the connection. In the beginning, all women, all men narrate their story by saying, in the beginning, it was good. Very, very good. What happens next, though, is that there's a chaos. There's a crisis. There's a violent act. And that stained glass never looks the same again. If you think you can just rewind the tape to the pain number one, you are very mistaken. Because what happens when violence occurs is the trust and the betrayal is, the trust is broken and the betrayal is tremendous. And as women and as men who talk about what's happened in their life that's evolved, they talk about the moment when they, they contract, when the agreement, when all under God that they had promised seems like it's been shattered. Next is the aftermath, and what happens in the aftermath is that pain and brokenness abound. Your life is shattered like pieces of glass on the floor, and you need help. 
to be able to identify which of those pieces you're going to be able to harness to move forward. Which of those pieces of your spiritual journey and of your experience of friendship and, and your family connections from the past, which of those are you going to be able to employ to be able to move forward to healing and wholeness? And I want to suggest to you that every person who's sitting here this morning, male and female, can play a role in helping someone who's brokenhearted see that there are pieces of strength and resiliency amongst all the pain and brokenness. You know, sometimes we cannot see that for ourselves. We cannot see that there's strength and resiliency even in the time of trial. And that's sometimes the role that we play with one another. And I just want to say, if you happen to be sitting here in your mail this morning, one of the most radical things you can do in your life is to support other people who've been victimized and to call those who act abusively, whether the abusive person is male or female, to accountability. You can have an enormous role in all of this. After the, the, the chaos and after the, the, the uh, pieces of life shattered, comes next the whole process of rebuilding. And that story isn't the same for any, everyone. It depends in part what your cultural capital is. It depends on what kinds of things you've been able to do before. It depends on the way your spiritual journey has narrated itself. But all of those who we've talked to talk about the whole process of rebuilding and, and getting their lives with help from both those who are trained and, and those of us who are not particularly trained but who love justice. And then, of course, there's renewal. And renewal is a beautiful time. Renewal, we all know about it in some way in our lives when something has happened to damage our spirit or cause us to be discouraged or cause us to be depressed or anxious. We know the, the joy when we're able to say, what can I take from my life to move forward? And this, of course, is renewal. And then the next is new beginnings. That there's a new portrait. You remember the first portrait were colored pieces of glass connected. Now we have a new portrait. And it bears some resemblance to the one before, but in some cases it doesn't as much. You see, when the language of the spirit infuses the language of contemporary culture, new images can be created from the broken pieces of glass. The language of the spirit involves words of religious comfort to victims and words of religious accountability to offenders. The language of contemporary culture involves recognizes the principles of safety, empowerment, empathy, and justice. For religious men and women, weaving together the language of the spirit with the language of contemporary culture is very powerful. It begins to shatter the silence of the holy hush. We've followed a, a, a series of our studies where we looked at those who had acted abusively, and one of the interesting things that we found in that research, which I'm going to be talking about at our lunchtime address today, is that the words of mandating people to get help from a religious leader are more powerful than the words of the courts for those who are religious. In other words, when the court says to an abusive person, you have to go to a 52-week program in order to get help, 
there's about a 50-50 take up on that, even though not going is in violation of the court order and what the judges had to say. When a religious leader collaborates and cooperates with the justice system, that goes up to almost 80%. That means the words of our moral authority are still quite important in terms of dealing with issues like this one. For our last few minutes, I want to say to you, what does it mean for you and I to bind up the brokenhearted? Well, there's five things that every congregation or person can do. First, we can ensure that safety is the top priority and that information is available. We can place a poster and other related information near or in the pastor's study that says Christian love shouldn't hurt. In fact, that was one of the brochures from our website that was downloaded the most. Christian love shouldn't hurt. Secondly, we can place a brochure in every church washroom together with contact information for the shelter. Bathroom stalls are one of the few confidential places in a church. You pick up a brochure in the foyer of your church and your name would be on the hotline for prayer before you got to the car. You pick up a brochure in the bathroom, no one knows. You can identify one Sunday in the calendar year to discuss abuse and place in the bulletin relevant information about it and how to seek help. You can also mention that interested church members can volunteer their time for financial or in-kind donations to the local women's shelter. One year, our girls in their Sunday school classes collected uh, school supplies for September to take to the shelter. It's pretty hard to go to school without new school supplies if you're living in the shelter. You can ensure that the youth group has one evening, at least once per term, where abuse and dating relationships is discussed, and where teens are encouraged to ask for assistance if they or someone they know is part of an unhealthy relationship. And you can discuss the issue of abuse in all premarital counseling that occurs in a church-based setting. In fact, in our work, we found 25 years ago that about 40% of religious leaders discussed abuse in a, a premarital counseling, and sadly, that number's gone down to about 32% 25 years later. And yet, we have learned that when religious leaders mention that abuse sometimes happens, a woman or a man is more likely to go back to their church later on and look for help if it occurs. I'm going to just very quickly go through some parts of our website in case, whoops, in case you might be interested. It's www.theraveproject.com or .org. Rave standing for Religion and Violence e-learning. If you're doing a paper on abuse, you can find we've got data from around the world. You click on the dot and you get it in a little bit more detail like Canada, Japan, whatever. We have frequently asked questions, and in each of those frequently asked questions, there's a little bit about abuse, and then what happens is that it goes to ask a theologian, ask a social scientist, ask a victim to give you a bit more information. You can go on to read some of the stories of those who've either been abuse victims or those who have been perpetrators in terms of kind of uh, giving you a fuller understanding of how that works and what might be done. Then, of course, you can go to what's probably the most important, which is called the Help Now. 
And this is where on our website, every single shelter in North America is listed. And so if you've got no advice to offer, you could suggest to someone that they have a look at the website. You can tell them that all of the resources that are available in communities are listed with their contact information as well. You see, eradicating family violence is a central component to healthy relationships everywhere, including the church. It's time to stop the holy hush. It's time to wake up to the reality and prevalence of abuse. Every congregation can be a caring community, a place where it's safe to disclose the reality of abuse and a place where you know you'll receive help. Together, we can make a difference in the lives of the brokenhearted. There is no place like home. When violence strikes, there is no home. Supporting victims and calling those who act abusively to accountability is something that every one of us can do in our homes, in our churches, and even here at IWU. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for letting me share. Go in peace.